Well, this evening we're in Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 11 through 26. And the last little section we'll look at again next week, that is um, verses 22 through 26. It's uh, a little pericope or episode that uh, in technical literary terms we'd call it Janus. Janus was some kind of a Greek god with two faces, one looking forward, one looking back. And so sometimes we have these episodes that pull on what's come before and look ahead to what comes next. So we'll, we'll look briefly at the healing the blind man this week and then again next week, um, uh, seeing how it feeds on both these. Let's begin, though, in Mark 8, uh, starting at verse 11. I'll just read the whole section and then we'll discuss it together. Then the Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us eyes to see. You've given us ears to hear. May we indeed use them to see the truth in your word, to hear your word rightly. Let our hearts not be hardened, but open and receptive to the truth in this passage. May our eyes be open like this blind man to see the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're looking at three episodes here, and it's a first glance a little bit of a grab bag, uh, a, a mixed you know lot what we have. First, the Pharisees come seeking a sign. Verse eleven is laden with both irony and overtones. Let me point out the overtones and then ask if you see the irony. First, uh, the Pharisees came to him, but it's not the normal word that would be used for coming. It's almost uh, they came out or they came out against him. And indeed, Mark says, they came out and began to argue with him. They're looking for a fight. They're seeking a sign, which may not be wrong, but why do they want a sign? In order to test him. 
This isn't the word for testing to find out if he's reliable. It's the word for testing, like putting obstacles in his way. In Mark's gospel, this word is used four times. Uh, We've already encountered it once. So in chapter one, Jesus goes in the desert and uh, Satan uh, tests him. Uh, Mark 1.13. Then here in verse 11, the Pharisees test Jesus. Uh, In 10 verse 2, if I can change pages quickly, the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then again in 12.15, and they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians and they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you're true. Uh, But knowing their hypocrisy, they asked this question, um, do we need to pay taxes? Knowing their hypocrisy, he said, why do you put me to the test? So it's interesting that the first tests are these three in the wilderness of Satan testing Jesus. And then in Mark's gospel, there's three more tests and they all come through the Pharisees. Uh, Not a good association for the Pharisees to be in here. So there's some overtones to this confrontation. But there's also irony. Do you see what the irony is? Yeah, they're looking for a sign. And why is that ironic? He's just fed 4,000 people in the wilderness. And they're saying, well, what, what else can you do? You got any other, any other signs available? Uh, you know, what more can they really ask for after he's fed the 4,000 in the wilderness? It may be that this is a different occasion. Uh, verse 10 does say immediately he got in the boat with his disciples and went to the district of uh, uh, Dalmanutha. And yet Mark puts them back to back because Mark wants us to see that this is publicly reported stuff Jesus has been doing. And they're coming, testing him, asking for a sign. Yeah. His reaction He sighed deeply in his spirit. It's interesting. Uh, This is uh, the only time this this terminology is used in the New Testament, and apparently in all the Greek literature we have, it's only used about 30 times. Uh, And the commentators who look at all those 30 times say it's not typically anger or indignation, but dismay and perhaps even despair. Okay, Jesus isn't mad at the Pharisees, but he's almost... uh, He's almost in despair. He's saying, you guys are so close to where I'm at on so many issues, and yet you're coming out in confrontation, looking for an argument, looking to put me to the test. Uh, I I think we've all experienced that sort of discouragement when someone's so close to us and we think, like, we're on the same page on so many things, and yet you're after me about this. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. It's a bit strange. Many signs have already been given to this generation. Certainly the sign of the cross and the resurrection will be given to them. And yet I think the the point here is it's not the sort of sign that they're seeking. And again, I think this goes back to the test in the wilderness where Satan's tempting Jesus saying, you know, do some party tricks with your power to prove that you're the son of God. And Jesus saying, no, I'm not going to use my power in that sort of way. Uh, Yeah, Nate. It must be a slightly different word because I, I, I didn't look, but the commentary did say this is the only time in the New Testament. This, so it must be a slightly different form or something. Yeah, good, good question. Um, this response about not giving a sign, it, it picks up some language from the Psalms that gives a bit of context to this. 
Uh, the first is Psalm 95, and I'll just flip to these and read them. You don't need to flip over. But in Psalm 95, uh, verses 8 and 9, uh, picking up actually slightly earlier, the end of 7. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day uh, at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Okay, so it's a warning. Don't put me to the test and harden your hearts, even though you'd already seen my work. Likewise, in Psalm 78, uh, verses 17 through 20, a little bit longer, again, going over this sort of stuff in the wilderness. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. It's interesting, the testing there is specifically about food. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath and a fire was kindled against Jacob. Again, it's interesting. The, the, The test is saying, can God feed the people in the wilderness? Jesus has just fed the people in the wilderness. And yet they're saying, well, what other sign is there? And notice that testing language in both those. It seems to me from this, uh, and I'm, I'm interested for your thoughts as well, but it seems to me that there is a bit of a challenge here. How often, at, at least for myself, I've heard many times, perhaps you have as well, I'm sure, uh, unbelieving friends or family saying, well, you know, if, if Jesus is real, why doesn't he do X, Y, or Z to show himself to me? Uh, that's sort of a challenge that why doesn't he submit to my test and then I can believe. And yet that seems to have the wrong sort of mindset about what it means to trust Jesus. Uh, trusting faith is not about indefinite testing where you can poke and prod and experiment on Jesus and then maybe at the end of your life say, okay, I'll trust. It's saying, yes, I'm going to submit myself to Jesus's lordship. And over time, it becomes more clear that this is the right decision. But that, uh, that challenge, if only Jesus would do X, Y, or Z, seems fundamentally misguided, and it's the sort of challenge the Pharisees are making here. Am I the only one who's had people say, okay, Nate Nate at least knows what I'm talking about, so that's the sort of thing. Um, We have the Gospels. We have this account of Jesus' own life, of his signs. They're reliable. They're historically well-documented, and to to keep saying, well, if I only had one more sign on top of this, seems um, it's inimical to, to the attitude of faith. Nate, did you have your hand up? Yep. I mean, the, the gospel is written that we may believe. Yes, right? yep. And full of the signs that attest to who Jesus yeah. is. And, and yet you can't see the signs unless God gives. So it's the yeah, that dynamic, yeah. It's that dynamic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess it would be faithful to yeah. And there's many people that see the signs in the gospels and still don't believe. And so that in and of itself is never going to be sufficient, that there has to be the working of the Spirit, there has to be uh, Christ's own interpretation of what the sign means by his words. So, yeah. Any other thoughts or comments just on that first little episode? Yeah, Ruth? Well, I'm just curious why um, God was so patient with Gideon, right? With who? Gideon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I, I think that's a little bit of an indictment of Gideon to tell the truth that he keeps asking for signs. So, um, 
but yeah, God is patient with him there. Um, it's earlier in the story. Uh, there's less, you know, uh, uh, yeah, that is an interesting uh, uh, parallel there. Um, and there's certain times when God tells people to test him and they say they're not going to do it. Uh, yeah, it seems Nate. like with Gideon there is a, a willingness, like it's, um, it's not outright hostility. Yeah. 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 Like, there's no uh, benevolence toward him at all. It's, it's animosity. Yeah. The yeah the fight here is the the conflict here is who's going to speak on God's behalf. Is Jesus going to interpret God's will for His kingdom, or is, are the Pharisees? That's the confrontation here. In Gideon, I think the more I'm thinking about this. Uh, it's, you do have this motif throughout the prophets, so Moses, others, um, where Moses doesn't say, I don't trust your power, God, but I'm an unworthy spokesman. So at the burning bush, and Gideon, it's similar. He's not directly challenging God's power, but he's saying, uh, I think you might have the wrong man. Like, I, like, are you sure that it's, so it's the questions are more about himself than God. So maybe that's part of the uh, distinction as well. Yeah, good, good question though. Lots to ponder. Okay, well, they get in the boat then and take off going to the other side. I think I've mentioned before, the other side doesn't always mean that they're directly bisecting the lake, but it can mean they go along the shoreline to another village. Uh, Notice how Mark carefully narrates this section going back and forth between Jesus on the one hand and his disciples on the other. So if you just look down briefly, verse 13, he, that is Jesus, left and went to the other side. Verse 14, they forgot bread and only had one loaf. Verse 15, he warned them. Verse 16, they discuss that they forgot bread. Verse 17, he speaks to them, asks them questions. 19, they answer. Uh, And then uh, 20, he asks another question and they answer again. But it keeps going back and forth between Jesus and the disciples, Jesus and the disciples. There's almost a humor to this episode, but it's tragic at the same time. So it's a little bit tied up. The warning that's really central to this is to watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. We've seen now both Herod and the Pharisees are opposed to Jesus, although perhaps from different motivations. And Jesus is warning the disciples, uh, leaven works its way through the whole loaf. You just put in a little bit of leaven from your starter and it can, you know, a thousand grams of flour gets uh, permeated by the leaven as it as it works its way through, and so Jesus is warning them: these basic attitudes of disbelief and opposition can blossom into something uh, that's outright opposition, like you see in the Pharisees and Herod. Uh, it's interesting he lumps them together because they have rather different tacks: uh, Herod and the Pharisees. The Pharisees' vision of the kingdom of God is relatively non-political. The Romans can do their thing as long as the Pharisees are free to practice their particular strict form of Judaism. And they think that the kingdom is about getting more and more people to follow their particular interpretation of the law. So that's kind of what it's a withdrawal from the political situation and just saying, we'll just kind of do our own thing over here on the side, but people need to be strict like us in order to be part of the kingdom. Herod, on the other hand, uh, and I think we've talked about the Herodians once or twice, I mean, they are uh, associated with the Jews, but also very much uh, uh, allied with the Romans. 
And their vision of the kingdom of God is centered on their own temple that they've built in Jerusalem and their own family dynasty. So the kingdom of God means Herodians still occupying the throne. So it's a very political vision. In broad strokes, I think we can see both these temptations in our own day, the temptation to withdraw from society as a whole and we'll just live in our own strict sort of sect on the one hand, like the Pharisees, or to make these political alliances to get power and move the kingdom of God forward in that way. And I think if I can use these sort of broad strokes, Jesus is warning us, watch out that neither of these is being salt and light in the world as his disciples are meant to be. Uh, and we talked about that a lot in First Peter, but again, we see that same sort of a warning here. So there's warnings about misunderstanding and disbelief growing ultimately into open opposition. Well, almost comically, the disciples misunderstand and they think he's talking about bread, uh, literal bread. So uh, they start discussing, you know, we don't have enough bread. What are we going to do? And again, we have this irony. He just multiplied uh, uh, four loaves for 4,000 people. And now they've got one loaf for 12 people. And they're thinking, well, how in the world are we going to get dinner tonight? It's just this, again, uh, comic misunderstanding. Jesus here, I think, is probably the most pointed he's been with the disciples so far in rebuking them. And uh, kind of looking broader picture, the healing of the blind man that we're going to look at in just a moment marks a turn. And then uh, uh, when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ in verse 27, they're up in Caesarea Philippi, which is way to the far north at the headwaters of the Jordan. So it's as far north as Jesus goes in Mark's gospel. From that point on, him and the disciples are journeying, Jesus and the disciples are journeying towards Jerusalem. Okay, and once they get to Jerusalem, if the disciples don't have a, a good understanding or at least a workable understanding, they're going to totally abandon Jesus when he's arrested, which they do, but they'll also miss what the significance of the cross, the resurrection. So Jesus is trying to get them in a position where they can understand his mission. Uh, and initially it seems like, well, they all abandon him. And yet after the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, uh, the, the disciples do carry the word out. The kingdom grows like Jesus means for it to. So it's, it's, it's a, um, it's careful, deft discipleship of getting them into a position where once they, uh, I'm trying to think of the right uh, analogy. Um, uh, what do you call it when you do the cars in boys club and you let them go down the Pinewood Derby. I mean, it's a bit like that kind of a thing that you get to Mount Caesarea uh, 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 Philippi. It's actually on the foothills of Mount Hermon, the high point up in the north. And it's a bit like, okay, once we let go here, we're on a trajectory. We've picked a lane. And so I need to get the disciples in position. Uh, and so he's pretty stern with them here. He asks seven questions. Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, do you not remember? There's two contexts that help us to see a little bit of what these questions are on about. The first is, do, can you think back, uh, uh, there's, this is the third time by my count that we have an episode that takes place in a boat. Do you remember uh, two other times? Maybe you remember, maybe I miscounted this more, but I, I remember two at least. Uh, That's right. And that ends with them filled with great fear and saying to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So at the end of chapter four there, yeah. And then another time in a boat. Uh, it's a ghost. Yeah, they think he's a ghost. He comes walking on the water. 
And the end of that story, this is 651 to 52. He got into the boat with them. The wind ceased. They were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000, but their hearts were hardened. Okay. And now again, they're in the boat with Jesus and, uh, the boat journeys are, in a sense, some of the few times when Jesus is totally alone with his disciples, with the 12, and he's, he's saying to them, is your heart, are your hearts hardened? He's challenging them. So these three boat stories together are interesting in that respect. But Jesus, by asking these questions, he's also picking up the language of the Old Testament prophets. So remember Isaiah 6? Uh, remember what Isaiah's commission is? Um, probably the least encouraging uh, ordination sermon that any minister has received. His charge is to tell the people, go on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Okay, so Isaiah's mission is actually to close eyes and ears, not a call that most ministers would want to receive. Um, and then, uh, likewise, Jeremiah five, I won't read the whole thing, but Jeremiah five, 20 through 31, there's a long section here where again, Jeremiah speaks, hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes, but see not who have ears, but hear not. Do you not fear me? Declares the Lord. Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that cannot be passed. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God. They've turned away, and so shall I not punish them for these things. Uh, that's some of the key verses, but it's interesting there that Jeremiah, again, he's saying their hearts are hardened. They don't fear the Lord. Well, in that first boat story, they do fear, and yet do they have understanding yet? Well, Jesus then asked, don't you remember? He said, let's go, let's review the facts. First, when I broke five loaves for 5,000, how many basket pieces did you take up? 12. Uh, and the seven loaves for 4,000, I guess I got the bread loaves wrong a minute ago. Uh, seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full? Seven baskets of leftovers. Okay, they remember all the facts. And yet Jesus asked, do you not yet understand? Okay. Now, just briefly, before we turn to prayer, the healing of the blind man. What's going on here? Okay, they come to Bethsaida. Some people bring him a blind man and beg him to touch him. I wonder, do you notice some parallels with the healing of the deaf man that Austin taught on a couple weeks ago? I know, I didn't warn you. It was me pop quiz from <laughs> review. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the spitting. Yeah, so the only two times that Jesus is recorded as spitting in the Gospels uh, uh, and these two healing stories. Um, yeah. I think in chapter 7, he also takes that man away into, the private, into a private place, kind of away from the crowd. Here he takes the blind man outside of the city. And then, the, and then there's this couplet of, of, of deaf and blind, and this is just what he's challenged the disciples. You have eyes, don't you see? You have ears, don't you hear? Well, this is a, a, a strange healing story in a number of respects, not just the spitting and the laying on of hands, but that it's in two stages. 
he heals him and then he's saying what do you see and he says i see people but they look like trees walking it's a bit like when you go to the eye doctor you know and it's which one's better one or two one or two do you know what i'm talking about uh, the glasses people know what i'm talking about here sorry sorry on glasses people if you don't know what i mean but uh, it's a, it's a bit like that that jesus is trying to say like is it fuzzy like is this one clearer is this one clear and what's going on is he just worn out and having an off day like what is going on here i think what's going on is it's a picture of the disciples themselves okay he's challenging them he's saying don't you see don't you hear don't you understand and they're the disciples themselves are like this blind man they're starting to see but it's like trees that are fuzzy and they don't yet have the high def sight fully restored seeing everything clearly so they're they're in this development uh, process and so we'll see this even next next time this is why i want to come back to it is Peter confesses Jesus is the Messiah, and yet remember right after that is when he rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to die on the cross. And so he sees in part Jesus is the Messiah, and yet he misses so much about what that means, what his mission is going to look like. And so uh, the whole journey to Jerusalem is a bit like their, their vision's getting increasingly clearer, hopefully, uh, and then ultimately it's only after the resurrection that they have fully restored vision. But it's a reminder to us that discipleship is not a light switch getting turned on. It's a process, okay? You see initially things, you know, the central thing maybe clearly, but peripheral things fuzzy. And then over time, stuff gets more clear. Any other comments on any of these episodes or stories, questions? Yeah, Nate. Just the prior section, the do you not yet understand? Yeah. Kind of waiting for you to explain it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. No, I think as readers, yeah, it's pushing us to keep saying, okay, what is the lesson that we're supposed to be picking up here? And it's it's make it's forcing us to look back as well. If they didn't understand about the bread, okay, what are my lessons am I supposed to keep picking up here? But it is interesting as well. Um, it's a bit like uh, uh, this analogy isn't original to me. One of the commentaries used to, but. Uh, uh, a, a, a good math teacher doesn't just tell a student, well, you know, I can't figure out this problem. Well, the answer is 38 or something like that. The student doesn't learn anything. Uh, it's trying to teach them how to learn for themselves. And so it's interesting in light of uh, uh, the Proverbs studies that I've been doing that Jesus doesn't just lay it out for them. X, Y, Z, here's the three things to believe. But he's asking them questions and he's challenging them and he's forcing them to wrestle with this because he wants them to grow in wisdom, to be able to discern who he is for themselves. Um, and oftentimes, uh, I haven't done a ton of teaching, but some teaching and students, the ideas that they come to themselves rather than just being given and forced to memorize, that's the things that get deeper into you. And so if you can set students up that they can kind of perceive the lesson themselves, it sticks much deeper. And so Jesus is, yeah, questioning, prodding, uh, 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 trying to incite them to learn, not just giving them the answers. Yeah, yeah great, great uh, observation, Nate. Well, let's turn then to our, our time of prayer. Uh, and I'm sure there's lots more to reflect on, but we can reflect over supper uh, in a bit.